John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 565.jb1921 certificate number 38221 the hand of god y por eso están viniendo más por aquí Paulinho asociándose con Leo Messi va a llegar Jordi Alba al límite el centro gol whenever i think of the hand of god the first thing i think of is margaret thatcher how so? Well, she just ruled England with an iron fist, and an iron fist and the hand of God are more or less the same thing in my religious cosmology. I imagine the foot of God stomping on <laughs> Margaret Thatcher like a Terry Gilliam and animation. Now something completely different. Uh, so Margaret Thatcher is your god, goddess? Uh, no, not my god, but a god, I think. Which is great for a former <laughs> food, food scientist. <laughs> Does that mean Dennis is a god? Dennis the menace? Dennis Thatcher. Oh, Dennis Thatcher. Her long-suffering husband. Not a god. Spouse of a god. Consort. Uh, no, I do not think Margaret Thatcher was a god. I came of age during the Reagan and Thatcher years. I mean, came of age as a as a political uh, person. And so I grew up um, I grew up as a teenager despising them both with the kind of like like unshakable conviction that only a teenager can have. Um, and remember them, prim- remember Thatcher primarily as a, as, as a, a subject of mean Elvis Costello songs. Yeah. And a giant puppet in a, in, uh, in like a, um, Genesis music video. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was actually her. A lot of people don't know that. It was really her. The yeah, rest she, were puppets. She played herself. She yeah. was doing the early, early, uh, Andy circus kind of a thing. Do you remember the Falklands War? You must. You are old enough to have remembered or to have been conscious, cognizant. I do. I remember the, I, I think of it as a, when I think of the Falklands War, I'm picturing like a Time or a Newsweek cover, mm-hmm. you know, because those would show up on the coffee table and it would be like, war. And I would ask my parents where the Falklands are and they would explain that, well, you know, it doesn't really <laughs> they matter. They really exist. It doesn't really Falklands. matter. This is a, this is a proxy war that could it could lead to, you know, it's much like the way we're thinking about Ukraine today, you know, like what if this does turn into some actual NATO Russian shooting war? Because, um, you know, the Eastern Bloc was very quick to uh, defend Argentina against this kind of imperialist aggression from across the Atlantic. Yeah, although weird because uh, Argentina had a fascist had a military right, had a right-wing dictator right. that was just tr- like waving and being like, hey, sorry, the economy collapsed. Look over here. 
we're gonna um we got a battleship now right and and you know during that period um like uh, operation condor which was the cia's the jackie chan movie an, uh, the jackie chan movie which was based on a true story of the cia trying to overthrow all leftist movements in south america and replace them with super super bad isn't military a, dictatorships. Isn't a condor a big unwieldy um uh, throwback that's going extinct that's not that's not the best metaphor for your uh your Latin American uh, skullduggery, right? Yeah, and the the word condor appears in a lot of Cold War era spy stories and spy magazines. So it was, you know, con- condors were really in the news. Condor Man was huge. Everybody had a Condor Man lunchbox. But yeah, the um, the war uh, over the Falklands or Las Malvinas, Las Malvinas, as they say. Um, uh, yeah, you'll be hearing a lot of bad Spanish from me in this episode. Yes. Uh, it was, yeah, it was like a, it was a foundational, uh, moment for me as a, as a political teen. It produced one of my favorite Pink Floyd records, although a lot of people deride it as the first Roger Waters solo record, The Final Cut. An album almost entirely about the Falklands War. You will only listen to the... Fi- you never want to hear another Pink Floyd album in case you find that's not as good as the final cut. <laughs> the final cut is a really good record, and I won't hear uh, any talk uh, against it. Although Pink Floyd is one of the bands I've listened to all their albums. It's a concept album about the Falklands War? There's a lot of Falklands content. It's a concept record about the decline of England. England. That's what you have shipbuilding for. By well, Elvis Costello. It's the same kind of uh, it's the same kind of uh, elegy for England, but it's got a smooth Chet Baker trumpet solo. Yeah, that's why you know the um, the yards would still be open on the Klein if only it wasn't for the Japanese being so good at building ships. Although that's not the term used in the lyrics. No, so then there's that was, a little bit of racism, and that was the kind of racism that was okay back then. <laughs> At the time, anti-Japanese Urgh. racism. I in, love the Japanese, but they shouldn't be buying the Empire State I Building. Know, I know, 1982. That was could, such a weird. Hmm. That was such a weird news cycle. Um. So, uh, so if you recall, just to just for those of our listeners who uh, were not yet born during the Falklands War, it was um, one of the many dumb wars of the 20th century. And uh, the 20th and, and so far, early 21st century. Um, it was especially dumb because the Falkland Islands are uh, all the way down at the southern tip of South America, really quite obviously part of the, the uh, archipelago of islands shared, by, shared between Chile and Argentina that are South American. It's but, certainly closer to South America than, say, it is to England, Wales. Right. But uh, but the Falklands themselves and a few other groups of islands, the uh, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands, which mostly, I mean, a lot of those are just atolls. They're very far south and they're very cold in winter. Um, but they've been crown colonies of the United Kingdom since 1841. And they had a small population, but a, a div- you know, a devotedly um, UK population. Not much. Like, I don't even know how many, uh, you know, more culturally or ethnically Argentine people would have even been there when the first British settlers arrived. Probably negligible. Right? No, none, really. There's a, a harsh climate, not a lot uh, 
of reason to be there, but so they the, were... So the degree that anybody's there, they wish to be British. Yeah, the islands were settled primarily during the whaling era as, uh, you know, way stations for whaling ships, and they became you know, somewhat strategic in the 19th century, just the age of sail, and this was a place that, that I mean, it's like Ascension Island. I mean, the United Kingdom had a lot of colonial possessions that were just places to take on fresh water. Um, but no, they're, they're, there's no value to them, but they're... Hey. No, no, let me take that back. Wow. They're really, wow. really valuable. I wish they were underwater, <laughs> says John of the Falkland Islands. They're That's really a terrible blurb. Now, because they've been, since the Falklands War, um, they've, they've been very improved. And now, now since the Falklands were also, someone has heard of them, which, Some, which would right. not have been the case in say 1979. What's, uh, what's interesting is that in the sixties, uh, the UK foreign office was, really had no interest in the Falkland islands. And in fact, considered them kind of a liability. Like this was the era in mid sixties, this was the era of uh, the end of colonialism in, in a lot of parts of the world. And the UK was shedding um, its many colonial possessions. There were lots of revolutions happening around the world. And the last thing uh, the Foreign Office thought it needed was the Falkland Islands, which were a, a thorn in Argentina's side and had been um, for a long time just because – how dare they? You know, your typical kind of nationalist. I've talked to Argentine people even today about this, and they're just gobsmacked that anyone would would say that the Falklands are not Argentine. Yeah. And I'm like, but there's no real Argentinian people there, right? Never has. And they're been. like, look at a map. Look at look at look at a map. Like like that's kind of the that's the level of discourse. So even people who would not think of themselves as allied with the kind of the rightist jingoism of the Falklands War. From Argentina's point of view, they still take it as a, just as a, as a given. It's still a big issue in Argentina. You're absolutely right. And I think it always was a much bigger issue in Argentina than it was in the UK where most people couldn't have pointed to the Falklands. They were so angry. Um, and so in the, in the mid sixties, the foreign office actually said internally, let's just give the Falklands to Argentina. Well, that would have saved a lot of trouble. It would have. Who was against this? James Bond? The people who lived in the Falkland Islands. Right. Who naturally, as a far-flung territory, felt very patriotic about their... Um, more Catholic than the Pope? Yeah, their British More British than the Queen? And so they said, no, you know, we don't want to be uh, ceded to Argentina. Well, I mean, it's understandable. If yes. somebody asked me, hey, uh, your home is actually closer to Canada than it is to Washington, D.C., would you want to be part of Canada? I would say yes. But if somebody said, hey, your home is closer to Siberia than it is to Washington, D.C., would you like to be part of Russia? You know, I wouldn't be eager to make that swap. Right. You, you can't just go based on geographic proximity. Yeah, exactly. You can't say uh, that Vancouver Island, which is very close to the United States, should be part of the United States, although I firmly believe it should. I, I remember when the Argentine person tried this line of argument. Like, what if... What if there was just some island off the coast of America and it was like a foreign possession? And I was like, You mean Bermuda? That happens all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, let me show you a map of the Caribbean. Are you saying we should invade, uh, not Grenada, it's independent. Are you saying we should invade Curacao? Because I'm kind of into that. Well, Curacao's all the way down by South America. There, that Curacao 
all the it shouldn't be Dutch. What's closer <laughs> to us and not independent? Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we uh, and the United Nations had a lot of strong feelings during this period about about um, the kind of anti-colonial. This was the time when the time all the big European empires were being dismantled, and everybody got their own flag and anthem and uh, less awful name, and they got to join the UN. And the Argentinians were not, uh, and this is under. Um, uh, this is under our uh, our good friend, friend of the show, Juan Perón. Every omnibus from now on will mention Juan Perón mm-hmm. once. And Isabel Perón, his uh, his wife and subsequent leader of Argentina. Uh, they did not want to compromise I guess, on, I, I, on a deal. I, I guess I may have misspoken on the last show when I said that, you know, now that I think about it, I think the woman in that movie does say they made a, made a musical about her, but... I think Isabel, she was talking about Isabel Perot, not Ava. I don't know. This is, oh. couldn't be less interesting or relevant to the Falklands <laughs> or world soccer. <laughs> so many great movies about the Perones. I don't even know where to start. You should do a thing where you watch every movie about the Perone well, family. Let's watch all those movies that Ava acted in when she was Ava Duarte, yeah. you know, just weird kind of gaucho romances. See, this would be a great like film festival. You should do film festivals. Ken Jennings film festivals. We're going to watch Riefenstahl mountain climbing movies and Ava Duarte gaucho uh, romances <laughs> and nothing else. Well, so it becomes a, it becomes like a, uh, obviously it's very contentious. And for the most part, the UK government does not want the Falklands. Uh, they don't want to offend the uh, they, they don't want to uh, it's a political football right they don't want to f- give fuel to the kind of nationalistic side in parliament that w- is looking for any reason to scream and yell about the about the decline and fall what if you throw money at the people and relocate them like well, they, like they do when like some irish island no longer has a has a sustainable turning point population so there were a lot of attempts to do this they said well wait what if we like penguins. Uh, what if what if we did a, a like a lease option where we ceded the island to uh, to Argentina but leased it back right. for a period? So that's it's a Hong Kong situation where it becomes the next generation's problem, right? Or what if we introduce more Argentine culture yeah. in the form of like you know importing some delicious. Uh, like burned meat on swords. You can and watch dancing. That, watch that Disney movie where Donald Duck does the samba and the tango. Yeah, exactly. And then if you show your kids that often enough, they will want to be Argentine. Gradually, we'll we'll create a kind of mixed culture here, a blended culture that's less just a bunch of descendants of UK whalers and more a in, kind of inbred, like <laughs> inbred bounty mutineers and whoever lives there, <laughs> you know, let's, let's do a thing like that. Um, the UK granted the like oil and gas concessions exclusively to an Argentine oil company, like a lot of attempts to mollify the situation and basically get the Falkland islands off of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Islanders themselves who were not, uh, like a like an especially rebellious population they were people that were sheep essentially yeah they were just they were farming sheep and they were 
they were extracting oil from herring, but they... But, as, as a hobby. <laughs> but That's be, just for fun on Saturday nights. <laughs> it became... A, uh, it became a thing that the, that the UK just couldn't find a way to divest itself uh, without getting... Just getting killed on property taxes. Yeah, screamed, <laughs> screamed at. But also Argentina was very unwilling to yield, you know, unwilling to make a compromise because the idea of the Falklands being super important to, the, to their national wholeness was a, a, another political football. And... After Isabel Perón, uh, the the government of Argentina, uh, starting in the in the mid seventies or the the early mid seventies, um, the government of Argentina was a succession of military dictatorships, each deposing the next. Yeah, some guy with more gold braid on his shoulder and on his hat. Exactly, walks Lots up to the balcony, of... <laughs> pushes the other guy off. <laughs> the classic sort of image of the banana republic dictator with the with the all the braid. Except you can't go ban- grow bananas down there. Nope, it's too far south. What would you call that? What is that? Uh, uh, it's the uh, the burned meat uh, <laughs> dictators. Burned steak <laughs> republic. Uh, the whole the whole that whole era of Argentine government was called the national reorganizational process or the national reorganization process. Someday we will refer to this period in American history as the national, <laughs> national reorganization, reorganization process. process, or uh, a short uh, the the shortened form was El Proceso. It's a, it's a process. It's just the process. You can't argue about any of the details of how many of your spouses are disappearing in stadiums. It's a big process. And as you say, this was the era of the dirty war, the desperadocitos, the... Desaparecidos. Thank you. Desaparecidos. Very nice. Muy bien. Muy bien, Juan. Desaparecidos. Muy bien, Juan. Did you ever have a Spanish language class name? Uh, muy, muy bien, Paco. I did not ever take Spanish. It doesn't show. I'll tell you that. <laughs> because... Uh, I am probably the last generation of kids that were uh, that were told that French was the language <laughs> of the educated. Uh, I blame Julia Child, right? Yeah. By the time Sesame Street got more cultural hegemony than Julia Child, that you know that was the death knell for French. But you were just a year before that. What's interesting is that I did record a song uh, for a musician by the name of Denver Daly, who was in the band Desparadecidos. Desaparecidos. Desaparecidos with Connor Oberst. Denver Daly was his, like, uh, his bandmate, and he ended up making a record. Um, Is this before Connor Oberst was in Ojos Brillantes? uh, So Denver had a band called Intramural, and he reached out to me and I wrote a song or it was sort of based on the, uh, on the postal service method of like, he sent me a bunch of yeah beats and, and sounds. And then I wrote some lyrics and put some guitar and stuff on it and sent it back. And it came out. Was, on, it, was it in Spanish? Uh, it was, was it, not. Was it Chiquitita by Abba? Because Desaparecidos was not what this was. It was a oh, side project of a side project. It was El Intramural. That's right. Uh, that is a little bit of a side bar. Not at all. I think that's right down the... That's what people expect to hear when they listen to Omnus about soccer. <laughs> well, we haven't gotten to soccer yet. Um, but I believe. You believe the children are our future, and you believe that soccer will show up in this episode. Uh, so the... 
the uh, the Falklands War was precipitated by a Argentine invasion of the um, of the islands, partly because the latest and last uh, leader of the Junta, uh, by the uh, a general by the name of Galtieri, was suffering from low ratings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, economic <laughs> crisis, and a lot of people mad this is, about this. Is how the movie Network starts about all of their uh, their relatives being taken up in airplanes and thrown out the door. And the cool thing about Argentina is all the military dictators can have like Italian names if you yeah, want, or German right. names. Like the next guy might have been called Kretschmann. You yeah. don't even know. <laughs> that's right. Argentina and all its many splendors. It's a it's a rich melting pot. But nothing excites a bunch of angry people who are uh, suffering from military dictatorship. And massive inflation. And massive inflation, like a war with a larger country halfway around the globe for possession of some rock-strewn, windswept islands. Yeah, I think we should try it if inflation continues in the U.S. Hmm, Interesting. We should invade... Nova Scotia. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The Atlantic (laughs) provinces always should have been ours, and everyone knows it. Here, here. Actually, that is kind of a good... uh, that, That... that would be a good, like, campaign promise. Isn't that the premise of the movie Canadian Bacon? <laughs> is it? Yeah, President Alan Alda is, uh, things are not going well, and so he, I don't, I can't remember where he invades. Canadian Bacon, another film you've seen and I haven't, because it was on a list of films that you made to see that I did not That make. was me wandering around a blockbuster in 1989. <laughs> anyway, so uh, to uh, to just summarize, the Arjun... Tyne government, army, navy, air force, marines invaded the Falklands. And now the UK government was put in a hard position. Um, Look, we don't want it either, but we can't have this. Yeah, we can't allow this. We can't have this. And Margaret Thatcher, the hand of God, the iron lady. (laughs) The hand of God, as we call her, as we all, (laughs) as we all said. Um, She saw this as a great opportunity to do the, um, you know, to make the conservative case that, uh, that Britain was not a declining power. That's right. One Britain. And so they sent a big flotilla down and it was kind of the first real war where, uh, cruise missiles, uh, famously the Exocet missile, like these, these, uh, airplane to ship missiles really came into effect. Like there hadn't been a ton of naval battles. Did Argentina have any? Uh, they did. Theirs were, uh, theirs were mostly airplane to water, probably not airplane to ship. Well, and they had a lot of, you know, Argentina had a lot of modern weaponry, and they did sink some British ships and shoot down some British planes. Early in the war, that was a real uh, waking, wake-up cry. It wake was. Up, that's not the expression. It's a wake-up cry. <laughs> As we all say, it was a waking cry, a rally-up rally point. The old rallying wake-up. <laughs> the wake-up call to the British when suddenly they, uh, you know, they, they were cheerily waving at their flotilla heading across the Atlantic only to see it sunk. Yeah. What a bummer. And it was a long, you know, Argentina's a long way from England and also the Southern islands are even a long way from Argentina. So, or at least the, any part of Argentina you'd want to be. <laughs> and Argentina was actually in a kind of, uh, a real kind of contest that, that almost led to war with Chile over some islands in that same archipelago that were in contention between the two. That's the other thing I learned in Argentina. To this day, a little tense with mm. the Chileans. Oh, yeah. 
It's just like Greece and Turkey, except there's no one there in those islands. It's like the U.S. and Canada, except there's no Alan Alda making trouble. It's guano. That's what it is. The real resource there is guano mines. You've got to get all that guano. Uh, so big battles, uh, lots of people died. Uh, in the end, the Argentines were defeated. Uh, a lot, the lion's share of their army was captured. We should have just jumped to this, your, to your two-syllable prestige of the Falklands War. Anyway, a lot of people died and Argentina lost. The end. Uh, and, war and, is hell. And the, the, war, uh, the war was, it made Margaret Thatcher and her conservatives popular in the UK. They could it close was, so many coal mines yeah, it was, it at was, that point. It was remembered, you know, all the flag wavers waved their flags. And as you have said, uh, in Argentina, it was never forgotten. Still not forgotten. Still a sore thorn. A sore thorn, as we say. That famous expression, <laughs> a, a sore thorn in the in the paw of the pampas. That's what it is. I've I've said this on the show before, but I've been in Ushuaia, Argentina, which would be the capital of the province to which the Malvinas belonged, were they actually Argentine property. And all the flags and plaques and maps and stuff you see on civic and municipal buildings all have maps of the Falklands prominently displayed as if to show proof that they are part of that part of Argentina. That's all you need. All you need, as we know. Maybe in... they should have shown Margaret Thatcher that plaque I saw in Ushuaia, <laughs> and she would have been like, well, I had no That's idea. Really. And there are, there are memorials uh, right and left um, mm-hmm. in, in both Argentina and, uh, and the UK, statues of, of valiant soldiers. Um, and in fact, after the war, there was a new interest on the part of the United Kingdom to really make the Falklands into something. Make and so, it super British. So they built All food a, there has to be pureed there for 10 minutes before yeah, you take a single bite. That's right. Boiled potatoes imported from Ireland. Mr. Bean is now the president. No, they built a big airport there uh, because they realized, oh, we, we need a big airport there if we're going to fight battles we from can't here. can't just keep sending battleships. But a big port, you know, they turned it into somewhere because, because um, they... They'd fought for it and and might as well. Sunk costs. Um, the rivalry between the United Kingdom and uh, Argentina goes back before the Falklands War, however, mm. um, and and primarily expressed on the soccer pitch or the football pitch, as we say. Uh, El Campo de Futbol, si. as they would say in Las Malvinas. Si. So They wh- wouldn't say that in Las Malvinas because everyone there speaks English. Oh. But they would say it in... I'm, I'm speaking to a future generation <laughs> for whom Argentina has reclaimed their rightful heritage. Are you saying this? their their cultural war started in international soccer games? Like, are they a World Cup enemies? Well, you know, soccer, <clears throat> as we say here in the United States, and I hope our international lister, listeners were, will forgive us for not saying football. We'll say association football. Um, was spread around the world uh, primarily via the engine of British colonialism. Mm-hmm. And the same way they tricked us into cricket. They didn't trick us into cricket. By us, I mean... Oh, them. I mean non-British people. <laughs> oh, I see. The rest of the world. Yeah, that's right. And Argentina is no different, although never a British colony. There were a lot of British settlers there um, during the 19th century, and they brought their game of football. And it was, I think, it, it was in its early iterations thought of as an English sport. 
and gradually sort of caught on in Latin America as it did the rest of the world. And it was a, you know, it was kind of a sea change over time. Uh, initially it was a, it was a sport played by this, by this country club set. And then, you know, the following year there were more Argentines on the team. And then, you know, 10 years later, all of a sudden, uh, Argentinian football became its own, became its own sport. And then intra South American leagues and, and, you know, it took, it took decades but um, but Argentina still remains like maybe the biggest, well, with Brazil, I guess, the biggest reliable soccer powers in that hemisphere, in our hemisphere. Yes, but it, but but it really only kind of uh, took on a, a a global stature in the 1950s. Um, the first time that that Argentina played Britain, or I'm sorry, England. I should right. say. Now we're not talking about Britain now. We're talking about England. I mean, they could easily beat Wales, but the first time they played England was in 1953, I think, at Wembley Stadium. They were the they were the second team to play England after Scotland. Um and you then You mean ever? The, the, yeah. The ever to play because because international soccer Oh, at Wembley. Yeah. John, what would you say are the most important attributes in an employee? Well, let's see. I mean, I would want an employee to be trustworthy, dependable, friendly. I kind of want them to wear like a green, one of those green acetate visors. Well, because the employee that you're thinking of is someone to sit and count your money inside your vault. Yeah, I want somebody on a tall stool. Yeah. And when they're thinking really hard, they put their tongue up in the corner of their mouth. Mm -hmm. Do you want them to be named Bartleby by any chance? (laughs) I would settle for Bob Cratchit. And yeah. I would not let him have any pieces of coal. Would you open the door sometimes and go, back to work? <laughs> back to work. Yeah, I would say it in that voice. Aqueduct. Back to work. <laughs> uh, well, let's say I needed to hire some people, and I do. Yeah. I, I do need to hire people. What, what would I do? I wouldn't know where to begin. It is a daunting task when suddenly you for the first time in your small business's life you need employees where do they come from i need to attract them i need to interview them and i need to hire them and all of these things seem like way above my ability you can do all three of those things using indeed it's the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet all those requirements or there's no cost to you the employer john I spend hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, but I just can't manage. I think that was where you made one of many mistakes Mm -hmm. in your life. You should not have been spending long hours on multiple job sites because Indeed will help you with every step of the hiring process. They've got time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, Indeed Assessments, Indeed Virtual Interviews. I mean, how quickly can I get a short list of quality candidates with resumes that match my job description? As soon as you sponsor a post, you'll, get a, what? you'll get a list of applicants right away. There will be a, 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 a cold clerk sitting on the, mm. the, the stool in your vault mm-hmm. in no time. But do I have to pay for every application and not just the ones that have quali- quality applicants that meet my must-have requirements? No. What? You Believe it or not... And from the way you phrased that, I think you might believe this. You will only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Is Indeed a site that has 
only 1 million businesses worldwide that use it? Hire. Two, well, wait a minute. I mean, that's what I want. I want to hire. <laughs> yes, hire, hire people, but also more than 1 million. Do they have 2 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed? You're not going to believe this. Hold on to your garters. I'm holding on. They are actually more businesses than that even still. They use their services. Not 3 million businesses More worldwide. More than 3 million businesses wow. use Indeed to find talent and hire it. So sign up for Indeed is what you're telling me and get a $75 credit toward my first sponsored job, I say incredulously. Yes, and you'll earn 500 extra dollars in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. What you want to do is visit Indeed.com slash Omnibus to learn more and take advantage of this cool credit. You can claim this $500 extra in sponsored job credits by going to indeed.com slash omnibus. Indeed.com slash omnibus. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. International soccer was just, just beginning to be a thing at this point. And then the English team came to Buenos Aires... And they brought their second string team and play and the second string team played against the first string Argentinian team. Well condescending. In front of ninety-one thousand spectators. Yes. A huge game. This is in the fifties. Um, and then I think realized that they needed to bring their first string team and um and I think beat the Argentines, but they were, um, but this was a source of a lot of Argentinian pride to, or, or maybe it was a draw. That's the thing that's so crazy to me. We don't have any sports here in America that it can end in draws. Presidential elections. Presidential elections <laughs> often one. end in draws. The only one. Uh, but uh, so it's, it's never clear to me how you can have a sport where it, uh, up to 50% of all the matches I mean, there's no reason it couldn't be 90% um, end in ties. They love it. They do. It just gets their blood pumping. <laughs> so a good, weird. a good, a good one-one tie on the pitch. Uh, they played. They played against each other between 1951 and 2005. The UK and Argentina played 15 games total against one another on the international stage. Um, the UK has won six of those. Argentina four and five draws. <laughs> so, and I think one of those draws even was like a, 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 like decided, or I'm sorry, one of those UK victories was decided on a penalty kick. So, I mean, it's a pretty close matchup, um, but there have been a couple of massively uh, political games over the years. The first one in 1966, a game that is described that's the year that England won the World Cup, right? Yes. And this is this was a quarterfinal game in the World Cup that is known as the theft of the century. Probably not in the UK. In the UK, it is not known as the, <laughs> the, the, the theft of the century. Or in Spanish, el robo de siglo. Siglo. Siglo, that's right. El robo del siglo. That's pretty confident, knowing that the, for the next 34 years, there will not be a bigger robo. It's of the century. 
right? So many robos that happened after 1966, but... Unless they're saying that's the biggest robo between 1866 and 1966. Could be, or 1867, probably, to leave a little bit of wiggle room. That's correct. But in the game, um, Jeff Hurst uh, was... Of Argentina. (laughs) Good old Jeff Hurst, spelled G-E-O-F-F. G-O-F. Famous Argentinian name. Um, He was offsides and, uh, and scored a goal. And was not called for offsides, which uh, which he, he was clearly offsides, and the Argentines were furious about it. And then uh, the Argentine captain Antonio Ratten was given. Uh, this was this was right before yellow cards and red cards were issued. Oh, they were given cautions instead before yellow and red cards, which I think. This was an example where there needed to be some explanation of the difference between a yellow caution and a red caution. Like this guy should have been thrown out? Well, he was thrown out. Antonio Ratton was given a second caution and then ejected from the game. Oh, but in the in the eyes of Argentina, prematurely. Well, prematurely and unfairly, but mm. but and, and the reason is that Ratton was and I and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Ratin, Ratin. That sure, would be the French French. Way. What is it? R A T I N? R-A-T-T-I-N. That's probably Ratin. Ratin. Um, He was arguing with the ref, but he didn't speak English and the ref didn't speak Spanish. And and he was calling for a translator and the ref said that he didn't like the way Ratin was looking at him or he didn't like his face somehow. Mm. The ref was German and... um, and so he ejected him from the game. Well, he wouldn't leave the field and he had to be escorted off by the cops. And on his way off the field, there was a, you know, the, the like uh, corner kick flags had little union jacks on them. And he walked by and grabbed one and like, crinkled oh, right. it up. this was in, this was in the UK. It was in the UK. Yeah. They, uh, Britain won at home. That's right. England won at home. Yeah. And then he would, then he, you know, he sat down furious on the sidelines and wouldn't leave. And at the end of the game, the, the, More uh, like the temper tantrum, Del Ciclo. It was a little bit of a temper tantrum. The The English manager, Alf Ramsey, said that they would not swap shirts. Boo. Which is a That's thing. A, yeah, you swap jerseys, right? And he called them animals. And it was a massive, a major political, you know, um, incident. So in 66, this... Um, this would have been kind of a friendly rivalry. You know, most soccer rivalries are like neighboring countries. Yeah. Brazil and Argentina have one, England and France, or I'm sorry, France and Italy, uh, England and all of the other places in the United Kingdom that hate England. Um, so all of it. The Dutch and the Germans, you know, the soccer yeah. soccer rivalries aren't it's typically like, like uh, across the world. It's like U.S. sports rivalries. Yeah, exactly. Like the Seahawks it's, it's the against for, the Raiders. It's the team from your division, at least. Yeah. Well, so that's the status uh, of this this rivalry going into the Falklands War. There's already a pre-existing kind of um, f- feeling that the on the part of the Argentines that they have been not just treated unjustly, but but rooked like the theft of the century pretty strong terms and little did they know the theft of the century was really going to be this Falkland Islands 
getting, <laughs> getting theft from them. They named it Thefted prematurely. The, they did. It's only a few years after the Falkland uh, War, four to be precise, that Argentina and England are facing them, facing one another again and facing, facing themselves. They're facing themselves. I mean, isn't that what war really is? It really is. 1986, the two nations are facing one another in the quarterfinal, the, the, the Federation International Football Association. What does FIFA stand for? Sure. Let's call it that. One of the Fs is fraud for football. Federation International Football Amer- America. Yeah, America. <laughs> um, almost to the week of the Falklands War, like a, four years later, four, okay. in June of, of 1986, the two teams are facing each other in the quarterfinal. And uh, this is the era of a soccer player who widely known as one of the great soccer players uh, of history, Diego Maradona. The best in the world at that time. The by, best in the world. By pretty unanimous acclaim. And I think, you know, one of the be- like, widely understood to be one of the best soccer players of all time. He is leading the team. And he's a uh, he's a very charismatic. He's a a, a small statured a- athlete who uses his small stature to be quick and kind of undefendable. He's feisty. He's feisty. A lot of that's the cocaine, probably. Uh, but uh, he definitely has a lot of. Uh, <laughs> he's a, he is. I, I read a, a description of the time. Um, th- this was an era where. Th- the the idea of a, of an international superstar in soccer was kind of still a new idea. Pele had been the first, uh, but there wasn't built into the the international athlete culture the kind of um, like levels of insulation that a rich person might be able to afford themselves now. I mean, you were you were extremely famous, but still also very accessible. And, and, um, Maradona did not have handlers and didn't have people keeping him on a straight and narrow. And partly the reason we have those now is that we've, that we saw a lot of sports figures and celebrities, um, crater pretty hard. And also they don't want to meet the fans really. (sighs) The fans. Am I right? So what does that mean? A lot of people have stories about, um, Maradona encounters or just, or just that it was very easy for him to get into, get in with shady characters. He got into a lot of scrapes at one point in Italy. He was, he was, uh, like in Dutch to the mob. Um, there was, there were a lot of drugs, but he just, he took on the character of a kind of madman, like a, like a wild child that I think probably played pretty well in the newspapers then. And now, there's a lot more insulation. You know, you, you kind of don't, you don't, uh, uh, most of the American sports stars that have reputations for being wild children's these days, uh, that's not a winning strategy for them because it usually involves dog fighting or spousal abuse. There's a movie that came out last year about, um, Maradona's years playing for a a club in in Naples, and it's it's by Paolo Sorrentino. It's based on his own childhood as a Maradona fan in, uh. in Naples at the time. And there is a scene where he just, I think he sees Maradona like tooling down the, you know, tooling down some little hill, narrow hillside road, 
in some kind of convertible or something and everyone there is just like you know it really the the premise of the movie is that it would change this kid's life if maradona came to play for his favorite club that it would be the biggest event in world history and it was and in naples and it was well no it was the biggest event in world history it was el evento del siglo (laughs) it's why we all uh every sunday morning go and anoint ourselves at the at the temple of maradona playing in naples no turns out it was not the biggest event in history but this game did feature prominently in the events of history, the events of the 20th century. Um, in the second half, score 0-0, zero, zero, uh, Maradona is uh, in, the, in the scrum. Don't think there's a scrum, but okay. It's you know, it's a general term it's for a any metaphorical scrum. English colonial sport. They all have scrums <laughs> at one point or it another. It was the second chukka. Uh the ball's getting passed around. Uh Steve Hodge from the English side kind of kicks the ball, trying to kick it out. Uh it's you know, they're 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 fighting there in front of the goal. I'm not a soccer commentator, Ken. I don't know uh, it all the terms. Show. It's really coming alive. They're to me. down there by the goal and they're kicking it around and you know doing headers and other tricks, uh, bicycle kicks probably. Mm-hmm, lots of those. Uh, they're they're sweeping the leg. Uh, they're doing all that <laughs> stuff. Uh, Steve Hodge tries to clear the ball uh, from in front of the goal, but he kind of miscalculates it and it actually goes in front of the goal. And the the uh, English keeper is a tall guy, Peter Shilton. He's six foot one. And he and Maradona are racing toward the ball. Maradona being five and a half feet tall, uh, is pretty outmatched by, by Shilton in terms of, you know, getting, getting to the ball in the moment. And Maradona jumps up as though to head it still quite, still not quite, Still shorter than... As tall as the goalie. Yeah. Um, and hits it with his hand into the goal. Just straight up swats it into the goal. But makes a little... Kind of makes the head motion of a guy heading it. And because at the time there was not the incredible television camera coverage of the field as there is now, although there were multiple views... Um, it was not immediately apparent to the ref on the sideline, whose job it was to be watching, you know, he had the best, the best sight lines or the ref in charge of the field or the commentators on television. Really? So there wasn't immediate outrage. No one officiating saw it. He just jumped up, hit it into the goal with his hand, and it looked like he'd headed it, and they headed it, 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 it. And it's not, so it's not one of these where the whole the crowd and all the the English side knew that it was a handball, but the ref had somehow missed it because that that kind of thing does happen. In sports. It was exactly that. Everybody saw it, including oh, all of Maradona's teammates, the English, the crowd, but the the or the English team and the crowd, but the but the ref. Uh, a, a Tunisian man by the name of Ali bin Nasser. So Ali bin Nasser was the was the referee in charge of the game, but the linesman was a Bulgarian by the name of Bogdan Dachev. We're going to blame the Bulgarians for this. And uh, according to bin Nasser, the uh, Dachev would have had the better sight line. And in refereeing, you know, you defer to the person who had the best 
the best view. I mean, if everybody's down there in front of the goal, it's very possible that anybody's view could have been blocked. Yeah. And, you know, it's, there's a lot to watch in a soccer game. And, and, um, and so the linemen may have been watching the cheerleaders, you know, <laughs> soccer cheerleaders being a very famous part of the game. Huge. But what happened was Bin Nasser, you know, looked at Dachev and, um, and Dachev did not make any kind of gesture. Um, and so, so Bin Nasser made his own call, right? The assumption being that, that, uh, Bogdan, if he had seen a hand, handball would have flagged it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, even to this day, sort of contention between the two. Does Dachev say he, he did see it or? Well, Dachev says that, that, uh, Bin Nasser was inexperienced as a head referee and, um, that assistant refs were not allowed to challenge. Uh, I see. It, it, it feels very much like, um, they're covering their butts. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of pass on the buck. Anyway, Maradona said at the time that as he ran, you know, he ran away from the goal doing that big celebration, you know, he was uh, selling it. He was selling it, and he said, and then as he ran across the field, none of his teammates were embracing him because they were all standing there waiting for the goal to get called back. Uh-huh. And he was saying, "Embrace me, you idiots! Like, there, if you if you don't look, we sell it. Yeah, we need to sell it." And so they did, and there was a lot of protest about it in the moment. Um, the the broadcasters, you know, the commentators, color commentators, thought that the issue, the reason that that the English were standing around incredulous, was that they thought it was an offsides. Um, and it what it was on the replay it it's such an elegant little handball that you could you could mistake it for um for i mean you could understand how they didn't see it to the, to this day is there any instant replay in international soccer now there's an incredible system of uh instant replay that um that basically eliminates the possibility of this. There are lots and lots of kind of legendary handballs over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, just as there are, uh, there are goals scored like that one in the theft of the century by players that are offsides. I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, refereeing plays a big part in, in soccer and there are, missed calls that have gone on to make historical uh differences in in you know teams that win there's something we should explain to the future is that soccer is very particular compared to other sports where in other sports where officials miss a call or blow a call the official is criticized as having you know screwed up the outcome of the game whereas when this kind of thing happens in soccer uh, a, a move like um like Maradona's handball, or possibly even the the offside uh, the no, offside non call in the Robo del Siglo, the player himself is criticized as if he has somehow let the game down by committing a moral lapse. You know, like in, in American football, you would never see uh, you know somebody hold a little on a on a decisive football play, and then you know if if there was no call, the referee might get criticized for for blowing it, but nobody would ever say this is a disgrace to the sport that Jones would attempt to hold like that. You know, in many other sports, the assumption is that the players will do whatever they can to get an edge. And, you know, in the rough and tumble of the field, that's going to include sometimes 
things that will be called as penalties, and that's the referee's job to call or not call them. But in soccer, very much, it's, uh, you know, Maradona was held personally responsible for this as if it were an immoral act that he would have to apologize for to the spectators, to the other players, to the game itself. And I think as an American sports fan, that's very hard to understand. Well, and um, there are lots of other handballs in in soccer um, that were uh, where the Got a little rubber pencil action going here. <laughs> you were signaling me. It, it does look like that pencil's made of rubber. How crazy! This is insane. How is it doing that? Uh, there are other lots of other handballs where the where the um, the player, you know, was given that kind of unsportsman like criticism. Uh, in the Maradona case, the criticism all came from England, and not really from anywhere else in the world partly because Maradona was completely unapologetic. He fully did it. It wasn't an accidental handball. He fully did it. After the game, he was asked, was that, did you hit it with your hand? And he said, uh, the goal was scored a little with the head of Maradona, a little with the hand of God. <laughs> but he almost, he almost immediately took the stance that, this was retribution for the Falklands War that England had stolen from Argentina and that there was that there was something noble in scoring this goal uh dishonestly really it's kind of small potatoes it's a good it's a good deal compared to a whole archipelago he said he said that that getting this goal in this way felt a little bit like stealing their wallet it's robin hood uh yeah although stealing their wallet is also a crime <laughs> Not if you're robbing from the rich to give to the poor. He's from little underdog Argentina, although not in soccer. And he's going to, you know, he's a little, a mischievous little kid. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the thing that saved him and the thing that made the hand of God goal, um, so legendary and spectacular, there were a couple of things. One of them was that Argentina beat the English team and went on to win the World Cup against uh, West Germany, but also, but also, not but a few minutes later, Maradona went on to score a second goal in the game, a goal known as the goal of the century. Oh, so between Argentina and England, we have the theft of the century, the hand of God. And the goal of the century. I feel like soccer fans have problems with grandiosity. There's not at all. All of these things are accurate and level-headed descriptions of, of true facts. But it was just some very, I don't know if I can picture the highlight. It's just some super impressive bit of, uh, bit of soccer'smanship. It was a 60-yard dribble mm. um, where he basically juked four different players in the most elegant kind of like start stop way. And it's just Maradona. He keeps it's, it the whole time. It's all, he, he said later that he was, that he got the ball with the idea of setting up, you know, he was setting up to pass to someone else, but he was, he was, uh, he was too covered. And so he just had to keep going and he just, it's just exactly what you want out of soccer. As he makes his way down the field, he passes four different players, the, the, the run, Lasts 10 seconds and he scores a beautiful goal. Golasso. 
Uh, he later said that he could only have done it playing against England because every other team. It, it fueled his, his anger? No. He said every other team, somebody would have uh, hit him. <laughs> oh, I see. They were so. Sp- you mean after the previous incident? No, that just uh, because that's good strategy in so, soccer. Yeah. Somebody would have fouled him to take the penalty. But he said the English were the noblest players in the world, and they didn't. You know, they played with such honor. Is that a compliment coming from him, yeah. or is he sniggering? No, he meant it as a compliment, but also you know, it's sniggering in the sense that he said the way soccer is played now, somebody would have would have hit me. So wait a second, is the goal of the is the hand of God goal irrelevant cuz Argentina won 2-0? Ye- oh no, 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 England scored again in the 81st minute. England scored again. Uh, so it would have been a decisive that was the decisive goal. Right, and England was on their way to scoring a second time. They almost made it into a draw, mm-hmm. which I guess is a thing in their sports. I don't I still can't it's just like okay. Uh, they they would have a they would have a runoff right at, at the it, which round of the World Cup was this, this is the quarterfinal yes they would have been a they, shootout they would have been a shootout but the English couldn't convert on their final uh, their final play so yes it was the hand of God goal was decisive but Maradona proved that he was one of the great soccer players in the game just minutes later so somehow that. I think in the in the um, the historical sense of that cheat, he's redeemed because he, it's both it's it's the highs and the lows at yeah, once. Yeah, yeah, it, it it is redeemed, although not from the uh, the standpoint of the English. There were um, like, uh, did they just hate Maradona until the day he died? Peter Shilton um, never forgave him. See, that's a funny thing to me that you would have to. Forgive your opponent for getting away with a foul. Yeah, Come because, on, man. because Chilton was, uh, you know, is like a, a legendary goalkeeper and, you know, had, was working on, I think, the record for the greatest number of saves. Mm-hmm. And because of this, um, because of this hand of God goal, wow. he is tied for the greatest number of saves where he feels like he should have been. So you he, couldn't write this any better. It he, seems, it seems suspiciously engineered as a Hollywood ending. He should have had the, he should have had the legend. Um, so this goal of the century is in Latin America famous as much for the commentary of the Uruguayan soccer commentator, Victor Morales. Is that As it every, is for the goal. Everybody is some famous call, just like um, the the Giants win the pennant or, yeah. or down goes Fraser. It's one of those where, I mean, in, in researching this, I have listened to a lot of Spanish language shouting about soccer goals. It's so great. I've watched, I've watched a lot of videos and there's, there's shouting and then there's shouting. There's hysterical shouting and then there's hysterical shouting. And uh, Morales... Uh, you you really have to listen to his soliloquy. He says in translation, I want to cry, oh, holy God, long live football. He's saying this at the top of his lungs. And then he says, cosmic kite, which planet did you come from to leave so many Englishmen behind for the country to be a clenched fist crying for Argentina? 
Wow, do you think he had that all in the chamber ready to go? I don't think so. That's, I, ju- that's the poetry of his soul pouring he, out. He's talking to the cosmic kite. Cosmic kite. Which planet did you come from, he asks, of the cosmic kite. And it seems like in this case, Maradona is the cosmic kite. He is, yes. Or maybe the cosmic kite is the thing that that Madonna Maradona flies upon. Brought him to Earth. Um, but he really, I mean, I, honestly, I feel like if there's not a song already <laughs> that samples his... Uh, his uh, Play-by-play, there ought to be. I was just going to say that when Maradona died, like, Elton John should have recorded a song called Goodbye Cosmic Kite. (laughs) Goodbye Cosmic Kite. Well, Maradona just, uh, Maradona died not that long ago, 2020. Um, But this is a, this is an item that's ripped straight from the headlines. How so? Because in April of 2022, just to, just, well, let's see. I mean, less than a month ago, based on when we're recording this show, although this show will air in, in July, right? It will, or could 3,000 years hence. We don't or 3,000 years hence. After the 1986 game, in the, um, in the tunnel leading from the, the pitch to the locker room, as is the tradition in almost every soccer contest other than the 1966 theft of the century, the players swapped jerseys and Maradona swapped his jersey with player Steve Hodge, who was the player who had kicked the ball, you know, who had kind of uh, poorly aimed the ball that ended up being his fake header, the, the fake header. He traded the, the, uh, the jersey with Steve Hodge and Hodge had, uh, held on to it. He he let um, he let it be displayed for a time in a soccer museum, but he'd been encouraged to uh, to try and sell it. You know, there was a lot of a lot of interest in owning this jersey as an item of sports memorabilia. And as I say, less than a month ago, the Maradona jersey sold at auction for. Seven point one million pounds. <laughs> this is the one Maradona gave Hodge. The one Maradona gave Hodge, which, of course, a lot of people were like, "It's not the real one." But Maradona actually confirmed in his autobiography that he did give it to Hodge. Um, and so it's now the most expensive piece of sports memorabilia uh, that there is. Wow! And that concludes. The Hand of God, entry 565.jb1921, certificate number 38221, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, uh, in our time as we recorded this entry, John and I were on social media at Omnibus Project, uh, respectively at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick as individuals. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Please correct all of our misapprehensions about Mm. world soccer. Please Mm. explain to us the beautiful game and its superiority to all other international forms of uh, football. Please send us physical items. Send us a 7.1 million pound soccer jersey. Hedge fund guy, if you're sick of it. Please do. um, We will, uh, how much will we offer for it? Like all his NFTs have crashed now. And we will offer you $20 American <laughs> for your Hand of God jersey. You can send that to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. 
The best way for others who don't own that jersey to support the show would be to go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and consider becoming a supporter. Maybe some of you have listened to all 480 episodes and you need more content, in which case joining at the lowest tier actually delivers you access to our back catalog of addenda shows. We're now up to, I don't know, a few dozen? Yeah, well, yeah. More than 25, right? 25? Are we getting up towards 30? I don't know. Uh, the monthly addenda shows we've been doing. They're um, wonderful. We really have such a good time. Not like the drag that this show is normally to listen to. <laughs> we, <laughs> we we appreciate you sticking it out for this one. <laughs> but the addenda shows really move. Yeah, we really have a gas over there. Uh, so make sure you check that out. Become a supporter. And look for other like-minded futurelings to argue with soccer about uh, by finding futurelings on Facebook or Reddit or, you know, whatever, TikTok. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. (laughs) We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Ken is making his pencil rubber. It's a cat in the hat pencil. It has thing one and thing two. And it's working pretty well. And the two humans, I can't remember their names. You know, I don't know if you're tripping yourself out, but you're tripping me out. Getting trails. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all the recordings, may have been our final word. If that's the case, we wish you many goods and cheese and hope you come see us all. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.